It is just three days before England removes all coronavirus restrictions and daily UK cases have just topped 50,000. That's for the first time since January. Are we heading for catastrophe? Now, I should give you a warning at the start of the show. I'm not going to give you a categorical answer either way. I do think there are a lot of unknowns in this case. You will have watched shows before, for example, before Christmas um, at the beginning of January, last March, when we were pretty sure what we thought should happen. Um, That was before there was a vaccine. Things are more complicated this time around. So what I'm going to just try and do today is give you a fair outline of the arguments for and against. You can make your own judgments about the undoubtedly risky new world England will be entering next week to have that discussion. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very good. Just applying the after sun, Michael. Did you catch the sun today, Aaron? I did, yeah. I think I'm going to burn. Hopefully I'll I'll find some time to do that this weekend. I've been planning this show. Tonight we're also going to be discussing that Keir Starmer has said he will sweat blood and the latest crisis in GB News. At the end of the show, we'll be dedicating some time for a tribute to a brilliant journalist and comrade, Dawn Foster. Um, I'm sure she meant a lot um, to many of you you watching. So we're going to going to talk about her at the close of today's episode. Now let's go straight to our first story. Daily new cases in the UK have topped fifty thousand for the first time since mid January. As you can see, there were fifty one thousand eight hundred and seventy cases reported in the past. 24 hours. Now, cases are up 34.9% on the previous week. Um, Simple mathematics tells you that if this trend were to continue, we should expect 70,000 daily cases in a week's time and 95,000 daily cases in two weeks' time. We also had more data released today from the ONS. Um, So the Office for National Statistics every week released the data from their coronavirus infection survey. This isn't based on just people who are turning up to get tested, but is based on a representative sample of the UK population. Now, they have found that in the week ending 10th of July, so that's last week, one in 95 people in England had COVID-19. This is up from one in 160 a week earlier. I should say those are estimate those are estimates, sorry, based on a representative sample. The figures are slightly better in the rest of the UK. In Wales, um, one in 360 people had COVID-19. In Scotland, one in 90. And in Northern Ireland, one in 290. Now, what you can see there is how this compares in England, at least to previous peaks. So as this chart shows, we are not quite yet at the peak levels we saw in early January when over one in 50 people had COVID, but things are moving in that direction. You can see the gradient there is not particularly happy to look at. Um, Now, of course, the difference between now and January is that most adults are now vaccinated and the link between cases and hospitalizations and deaths has therefore been significantly weakened. When it comes to hospitalizations, there were 717 new hospital admissions reported in the past 24 hours, which compares to 4,579 daily admissions at the peak in January. So you can see a big difference there. It also seems to be the case that hospital visits are shorter this time around. That's because people turning up to hospital are younger. Um, You can look at that in, (laughs) you can look at that with glass half empty or glass half full because they're younger, they're less likely to die and they're less likely to have to spend a long time in ITU. But young people turning up to hospital is never a particularly um, happy sight. 
let's have a look at patients. Currently, total occupancy is much, much lower than at the peak when almost 40,000 people were in hospital. You can see that hospitals not nearly as full. This does mean, though, elective surgeries, elective operations have already been cancelled because the, the NHS has a huge backlog. That includes in the UK's largest hospital, which is the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham. And that follows similar situations in hospitals in Leeds and Newcastle. And of course, the current situation in hospitals is just a snapshot. What's really worrying is that exponential growth means this could change really, really fast. We know that cases are rising exponentially, hospitalizations lag cases. In terms of this danger, it was one which was set out by Chris Whitty. He was speaking to a seminar organised by the Science Museum. At the moment, the number of cases in hospital is mercifully much lower than it was previously, but not trivial. We've still got over 2,000 people in hospital and that number is increasing. If we double from 2,000 to 4,000, 4,000 to 8,000, 8,000 and so on, uh, it doesn't take many doubling times till you're into very, very large numbers indeed. And the doubling time at the moment is probably around about three weeks. Could be a bit less than that, actually, for hospitalizations. So it doesn't take many doublings till we're in actually quite scary numbers again. And of course, for every individual hospital person in a hospital, this is potentially very dangerous. And there will be, there will be people who die or have lifelong effects from this. So I don't think we should underestimate fact that we could get into trouble again surprisingly fast. And I think saying the numbers in hospital are low now, that does not mean the numbers will be low in hospital in five, six, seven, eight weeks time. They could actually be really quite serious. And as Kevin says, at that point, if it looks as if things are not topping out, we do have to look again at and see see what what's going, what, where we think things are going. So it is very important that people don't imagine just because numbers are low now, they will always stay low. Exponential curves look as if they're going very slowly and then suddenly they look as if they're going very fast. Now, given the concerns expressed there by Chris Whitty, you might wonder why he has been so willing to publicly endorse Boris Johnson's plan to remove all legal restrictions on Monday. Whether or not he he thinks that these arguments are showing the risk, but the, the other arguments for opening overwhelm it, that's one possibility. The other potential is he's holding his tongue. One group of people who certainly are not holding their tongues are 1,200 scientists um, who have now signed a Lancet letter. Um, this was printed a week or so ago, um, signed by lots of UK-based scientists critical of the government's approach. Um, it has now been endorsed by government advisors from Israel, New Zealand and Italy. When I say government advisors, that's basically the equivalent of being signed by a, by a SAGE member in, in the UK, something of that sort. Now, the letter expresses particular concern about the possibility of the current plan, which involves lots and lots of infections and not trying too hard to limit them. They're worried that this will create new variants. They warn the UK government is embarking on a dangerous and unethical experiment. So are they correct? As I say, I, I'm not really going to say yes or no here. I'm going to put forward the different arguments. So in uh, press conferences over the past two weeks, as we've discussed on the show, Chris Whitty's defence 
of um, loosening this Monday, even though there are risks involved, is that while there will be a potentially damaging exit wave by removing all restrictions on Monday, if we don't do it on Monday, that exit wave will just be pushed into the future and potentially into the winter when the NHS will find it harder to cope. Now, the arguments for that, for that idea that the exit wave is inevitable, is the vaccines stop only 75% of transmission of the Delta variant. That does mean, to my mind, that we will have an exit wave whenever um, we remove those restrictions because we're going to need you know, to block basically all transmission with a virus which is as transmissible as the, the Delta variant. So I think there will be an exit wave. It also assumes that the advantage of doing it now when we haven't vaccinated all adolescents and young people is bigger than the advantage of, of having those people vaccinated if it also means um, it would be happening when schools were open and it was the beginning of, of winter. So you've got the benefit of opening now, schools are closed, we're in the summer. The benefit of opening later, more people will be vaccinated. A big part of the scientific debate about which one of those is more important. Summarising the objection to Chris Whitty's argument, I think this is the best summary I've seen so far this week. We can go to Christina Pagel in The Guardian. So she writes, the argument that delaying now will only result in more infections later in the winter ignores three things. The protection millions more, including adolescents, can have from vaccination, the potential for vulnerable adults to receive booster shots in autumn, and crucially, our ability to offset the additional infection risks of winter with public health measures. So she's essentially saying, yes, it might be more difficult when schools are open, it might be more difficult when it's winter to release our public health restrictions, but we can take other mitigating measures, for example, vaccinating adolescents, giving booster shots to people who are vulnerable and um, using more public health measures. As I say, I'm not going to say which one of these is right. I will suggest some potential problems with that is, are we hogging vaccines? There are lots of people in global health who say the idea of vaccinating people who are at quite a low risk from COVID-19 in the West before um, even healthcare workers and, and the vulnerable in sub-Saharan Africa have been vaccinated. That's potentially problematic. Um, the other issue is whether public health measures are going to be enough to stop an exit waiver. Are we just delaying the inevitable? Now, as I say, should we be unlocking on Monday? I'm not going to give a definitive answer. I think everyone um, at Navarro Media agrees there are some things which are undoubtedly, unquestionably stupid, which the government are doing right now. For example, getting rid of masks um, on public transport and in shops. There are no good arguments for that, but for reopening, there are good and bad arguments. Aaron, I want to go to you on this point. We are about to reopen when we have 50,000 daily cases. I mean, that does make lots of people uncomfortable. I think it would be slightly odd if it didn't make um, someone feel uncomfortable. Should we be reassessing this plan? The thing I don't quite understand, and maybe given your sagacity on the subject, you can you can clarify this for me. The, the, the constant talk of, you know, exponential curves, of course, exponential growth is going from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16, 32, and very quickly things get out of control, as we saw last year. Given that 80% plus, I think now, of the, of the country's had at least one shot, given almost 70% has had two shots of the vaccine, surely there is a ceiling to this. I mean, we, we can't have exponential growth as you would expect under normal conditions because vast numbers of the people have either had, have either had the virus and therefore are producing antibodies or have been vaccinated. Um, so, I mean, I can only presume there is a ceiling here, Michael. Have you read anything that was sort of indicated? No, I mean, Witty did suggest that, but are there actually any sort of 
modeled numbers around this, which you would expect there would be, of course, given we know how many people we've vaccinated, we know how many people have actually had the have had the virus. Throughout this pandemic, it's always been the case that there would be a ceiling. Viruses always wear themselves out once they've infected everyone. The issue beforehand was that the time it would take to wear itself out or the number of people who would have to get infected to wear itself out would leave half a million people dead. There is lots of modelling for, 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 for this time around and, and there will be a ceiling. The issue is just how quickly will that ceiling be reached and how quickly does it happen? I mean, the government policy at the moment is too reach that ceiling before winter, essentially. We are going for herd mm. immunity now. It's just different to when we went to herd immunity before because we already have um, so many people vaccinated. And as you can see, you know, if transmission is only reduced by 75% by these vaccines, if it's still quite possible for many people to catch COVID-19 with these vaccines, we are going to need a bunch more people to get COVID-19 before we have herd immunity. So the government is basically saying, how, how do we, what's the most um, rational way to, to let the sufficient number of people catch COVID-19? I'd say actually that's potentially being too kind about the government. This is what scientists are debating and discussing. I think the government probably have quite a lot of ulterior motives, including um, how can they reduce the, the amount they have to pay for social support, etc. Mm. But when it comes to the scientific debate here, it is we are going to reach that peak where we reach herd immunity, but is now the time to do it when we still have lots of young people not vaccinated? Should we wait until they're vaccinated? Or if we wait until they're vaccinated, will that mean that we're doing it at a time which is even more difficult and even more problematic because it's in the winter? No, I understand all of that, but I just find it strange that SAGE haven't offered actual numbers about when this would potentially be, given that is the plan. Given Public Health England is publishing so much constant data on absolutely everything, you know, okay, well, this is the approach, as you've so articulately said, a mix of people getting it and vaccines being rolled out. It, it does still feel like we're moving around by the sort of seat, you know, the seat of our underpants and there isn't mm. no real plan. I could believe that was a plan if they said, look, by early October, we're expecting hospital admissions X, Y, Z to peak and it will stabilise there. Winter will make some new interventions and we honestly think by next spring, this thing will be beaten, more or less. I could understand the approach they've adopted, but until you see numbers, in the absence of actual quantitative data backing up this approach, it does just feel like a, a repeat of late last year. That's not to say the same thing happens because it won't happen, but we, we still could see a colossal screw up in terms of some economic demobilization, kids missing school, you know, huge numbers of um, excess, excess mortality, deaths. You know, there was a number last week, Michael, this was crazy in terms of, in terms of pushing back urgent care and non-urgent care, so things like cataracts. You're looking at 13 million people, apparently, according to Sajid Javid. 13 million people waiting for treatment on the NHS, perhaps. Um, so th th this does really feel like, again, there isn't a plan. And I know you're being very sort of, um, you're being above the fray, you know, as you as you, as you always are, you know, very inscrutable. I'm not going to argue for or against what, whatever measures we should adopt. But I think it, it does seem to be pretty obvious that there isn't really a plan here. I could be wrong. I should say I'm not always above the fray. As I say, there are, there are many moments where I've taken a very strong position. And I do, I take a very strong position when it comes to things like masks and when it comes to supporting people who are shielding. It's just this question of, of when precisely to reopen certain sectors of, of, of the economy that I think is quite difficult in, in this sense, because I have seen lots of sensible modelers suggest um, that if you push it into September, there could be added problems based on seasonality and schools being 
open in terms of the number at which it would peak out potentially sage have put something out like that but i mean my understanding is that there is just so much uncertainty here that even the top scientists are saying we don't really know this is an experiment <laughs> we'll have to wait and see and you could see that's probably why chris witty is saying we can't rule out this being reversible if the shit really does hit the fan we are gonna have to go back a few steps some people say, oh, he's got the numbers wrong in terms of people vaccinated. I should I should be clear, that's that's percentage of the adult population. So first dose is 87.6%, second dose is 67.5%. Though those are hugely impressive numbers, you know. And again, yes, one dose doesn't mean you're resistant to this, but it does to some extent reduce possibility of transmission, and it does to some extent reduce the likelihood of uh, something very bad happening to you, hospitalization, and so on. So, like I say, given those numbers, you know, you're looking at 46 million people have had their first dose. I, I don't quite understand how we can talk about, you know, logarithmic growth in the same way we could last year. Well, I mean, again, that's because that's the adult population. So 50% of the total population is, is double vaxxed. And if even double vaxxed people have a 30% chance of catching the virus, and then you've got 50% of people who aren't double vaxxed, you can see how that creates a big pool of potential people to get infected. As I say, I want to get up um, some data about vaccination rates. Um, obviously, a lot of conversation and especially the, the opposition from those scientists in the, in the Lancet I just mentioned is how much it is going to be young people who bear the brunt of any new spike um, in COVID infections. And you can see why that would be the case um, when we have a look at what vaccination rates um, currently look like across age groups. When you get up to the older age groups, people between 75 and 79, 100% of people are double vaxxed. Now, presumably there are going to be some people who aren't double vaxxed. That's because this is ONS data from 2019. The population has increased slightly from then. But we're going to be very, very close to 100% vaccination rates. There will be some people who have um, escape infections, people who are double vaccinated who still get the virus, but it should be much less severe than if they weren't vaccinated. When you get down to people who are between 18 and 24, much lower rates. So only 60% of people have had their first dose of the vaccine. Now, this is quite complicated at this point in time because you could say, well, everyone now has had the option to have a first dose. So maybe that's their choice. Can't keep locked down because people aren't choosing to have the vaccine. At the same time, I have to say, I don't think the government attempt to get people to get vaccinated has been particularly impressive. For young people, there are lots of people who aren't persuaded yet they should get the vaccine. And I, on the show, are always like, get the vaccine as soon as you possibly can. But it hasn't been overwhelming in terms of like Twitter advertising and Facebook advertising and, and Instagram advertising. I thought they would have tried a little bit harder than they would have done. Also on the topic of age, let's look at the breakdown in the ONS statistics, the Office for National Statistics. Um, so they show here that the highest rates at the moment are among people who are from school year 12 to the age 24. So that's from about 18 or 17 or 18 to age 24. 2.9% of that age group currently have COVID or had COVID at the end of last week. Second highest is people who are school-aged. Obviously, people who are school-aged won't have been vaccinated. People who are between year 12 and age 24, much less likely to have been vaccinated than everyone else. The good news here when it comes to how big is this spike going to be this summer is that the second highest group, their school years 7 to 11, they're going to be out of school. So potentially those will those rates will go down a little bit. The bad news is that the people who are aged 18 to 24, where 3% of them have COVID, they're the people who are going to be going out to clubs from Monday. So you can see how they could be a real hotbed for COVID infections, potentially variations, and presumably 
a lot of community spread. Let's talk about clubs very briefly, Aaron, because as I say, this is probably the, the most difficult one for me because I know a lot of people who are very keen to go out to clubs. When I'm double vaccinated, I'm quite keen to do the same. But I also do understand the argument that potentially this is going too fast too soon. What's your what's your take on nightclubs? I mean, they obviously they obviously shouldn't be open, Michael. Obviously, I mean, uh, this is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, I, I, under conditions of where you have have COVID passports, perhaps. I think it's a really important point, by the way, to talk about COVID passports. Great book out by Ben Bratton. We often think on the left, biopolitics, the idea of the state surveilling. You know, our, our, our data, whether it's as consumers or in the case of a, 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 a pandemic, our epidemiological data. He says, no, you know, this is just a fundamental reality of the 21st century is the left has to be able to embrace these things and talk about them propositionally. And so I, that did make me think, you know, it's a good book, short book, very much recommended. Um, it did make me think about, you know, COVID passports. But the idea, like you say, that you would have thousands of people go into small spaces, not necessarily tested, young intimately, you know, close to one another, no ventilation. I mean, you know, we, we thought sports stadia were bad enough. Well, this was that was people that were, you know, generally vaccinated. It was generally, you know, it's outdoors, it's well ventilated. And there was at least a possibility, at least you can socially distance. The point is you're there to watch the football in a nightclub. You're, you're there to talk to people and be close to one another and to dance and so on. So it, it seems unbelievable. I thought I thought it would never happen. I just presumed this would be one of the industries which the government writes off for a year, maybe even two years, right? Maybe even next winter we can't have nightclubs. That's what I thought would happen. Do you think that might be because you don't go to nightclubs anymore, though? Because I, I know there are lots of people who are, are really frustrated that they haven't been able to socialise in the way that they like to, who are now desperate to go to nightclubs. They've had one vaccine already, potentially two, and they're willing to take the risk. If people are willing to take the risk, I mean, that's, that's a strong argument for opening them. I know that that could lead to community transmission elsewhere in society. But if mm -hmm. we're going to get that anyway, because we either have an exit wave now or we have an exit wave in September, that's why I think there is a complicated situation because there is always going to be community spread sometime between now and herd immunity. If young people want to go give it a go now in nightclubs, you know, who are we to stop them? What I would do, I suppose, what's very important to say there is that we should be telling young people, if you go to a club, if you are willing to take that risk, make sure you don't go anywhere near someone who looks old and vulnerable. If you go onto public transport, if you go into a supermarket, double mask yourself because recognize that you could infect vulnerable people. But to say you have to stay at home for a benefit, which at this point is fairly unknown, that's why I'm very unsure about this particular issue. No, I, I think I genuinely think opening nightclubs is the craziest thing. I think this really does show the decadence of Western civilization, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being serious. You look at Taiwan, you look at South Korea, you look at all these countries, Vietnam, China, and so on. And then we're having a conversation that, oh, should we open up nightclubs on Monday because people in their early 20s want to go out? They've had a really terrible deal. No two ways about it. Mm. They should be getting the equivalent of a UBI, free university education. I get all of that. They should obviously be able to enjoy themselves socially as well. But, Michael, you know, it will be like Parc Morjuic in Barcelona. Have out, let's open some outdoor nightclubs. But this is... This is like basically creating the, the perfect set of conditions under which people can contract this thing and, and spread it. And it is important to say, Michael, that even older people who are double vaccinated can still catch this and can still die. And I, I, I sort of feel like we're not yet in a place where are care homes really safe enough? I mean, probably not. You know, there are old people, by the way, in Vietnam and China. They seem to be protecting them somewhat better than we are, even that, now. That's that's always going to be the case, though. This is well, now going to be, be the case. virus. It is always going to be the case. No, because the government can actually look after those people a bit better. 
I'm, I'm being serious. You know, if we're looking at still single-digit deaths in a lot of these East Asian countries, what, what are they doing any different? They still have old people. Well, what, well, so what most of the world is going to do, so there, there was a zero COVID strategy, which many I'm not suggesting zero COVID. I'm, I'm no, not no, suggesting no, zero COVID. So these, these countries which you're talking about, their short-term strategy was to have zero COVID, to stop travel, and to basically have all of these, these quite, you know, the, these measures which in normal times would seem quite authoritarian, but when it's compared to countries in lockdown in the West, they, you know, on balance, they, they definitely maximized freedom. Now vaccines are available. These countries are going to abandon their, their zero COVID plans. COVID is going to become endemic everywhere. Luckily for them, they can vaccinate their populations before they have an exit wave, but they're going to have an exit wave. And then older people who are double vaccinated will still catch COVID-19 and they still will die. The argument that you can't avoid that reality is actually quite strong. And the East Asia and the Australian example I'm don't not, really work because they don't have long-term zero COVID plans. Right. And the reason they've been able to protect their old people is because of a zero COVID plan. So ch someone like China does have the equivalent of a COVID passport. They do, right? And there are severe curtailments on your, or there was when it was, you know, when things were really intense early last year, there were severe curtailments on people's internal freedom of movement within the country. We, we aren't doing that, Michael. So I don't really agree with you. I don't really agree with you. I can they're see not going to keep that forever. Why not? You don't, you don't want to have internal travel controls in a country. I China, no, I don't. But I think China probably will. And I mean, you know, if we are in this age, if we are in this age of pandemics, it may be a thing that, yeah, you know, your sort of epidemiological data is actually tracked quite significantly. It may be that, you know, look, in this in this country, Michael, every year, every winter regularly, not last winter actually went down because obviously lockdown, you have about 40,000 excess deaths every year. And it may, you know, maybe as a society now we're going to have a conversation about, oh, well, do you want the state to say, sorry, in this part of London, you can't travel today because it's going to save 20 lives. Firstly, I don't want to do that, right? I think that's a bad idea, but it's a conversation that we need to now have which is at the interface of data, politics, and society. And it's quite clear that a lot of East Asia is going in a very different direction to, to, to Europe and North America. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not down for that, but clearly the approach is rather different. So the idea that we're going to open up nightclubs, no vaccine passports to people that aren't va vaccinated, you, know, you need something here. And it, it does seem kind of strange. And, and we haven't really talked about it yet. And it's a criticism that's been waged. We, we, we mentioned it briefly because of that letter that was in The Guardian, 1200 public health professionals. The, the idea that we are a, a sort of testing ground uh, for, for for new variants. And, and it's important to say new vaccines are being developed. There are obviously variations on present vaccines to increase efficacy rates, all sorts of things, particularly with the um, particularly with the uh, the ones that were coming out of Moderna, for instance, which they said they think they could alter those actually in a, in a quite bespoke way in a period of, say, six to eight weeks. Fantastic. Uh, it, may be that we it may be that we can outpace these new variants, but they're almost certain to arise. And I, I think the countries where they're most likely to arise will be the countries where you don't have vaccine passports and you have lots of young people going into nightclubs, dancing and getting off with each other. I, I know it's not nice. I wish they could go and do it, but I don't think it's in the public interest. And I think this idea of, oh, they have a right. To, no, nobody has a right to go to a nightclub, Michael. Nobody has a right to go to a nightclub. Young yeah, I'm, I'm not really terrible... talking in the language of, I'm not talking, I'm, I'm a utilitarian about these things. I'm saying if there's either going to be a wave now or a wave in September, and it's unclear which one is better, then it is difficult to deny people the opportunity to go to a nightclub if, if they want to. That, that's, that's my argument there. Um, I think they should be shut, I think they should be shut all the way through, probably through to, until we've got 99%, I'm not just the adult population, the entire population vaccinated. Yeah, then I think you can open up nightclubs then I think it's sensible. Until then, probably not, right? So, okay, another six months. Well, yeah, but that, I mean, that, would, that could mean many, many restrictions for a long, long time. Let's go on to our next story, which is also related to the COVID chaos. 
In the first week of July, 1.3 million people were told to self-isolate for up to 10 days. That's right, 1.3 million people. Now, that's an incredible statistic. We can see the breakdown here. Um, so this was via The Guardian, um, who were using NHS, NHS Test and Trace, the Department for Education. Um, so in the week between July the 1st and July the 7th, 337,695 people were contacted by NHS Test and Trace, either because they'd been in contact with someone who tested positive or because they'd been to a venue um, where COVID-19 was present. 520,000 people were pinged by the COVID app, and the largest number there, 624,000 children were sent home from school because someone in their bubble had tested positive. We can also, well, potentially add to this, there might be some overlap here, 194,000 people in that period tested positive. So there's up to 1.7 million people who were self-isolating over the past week. Um, so as I said, there could be some overlap, I'd imagine more like 1.5 million. Um, this is obviously having some very serious consequences. One, it's very annoying to be told to self-isolate for 10 days. In terms of the, the very concrete material consequences, probably the worst here, well, is the kids missing their education and also the NHS who are struggling with staff because so many members of their staff, so many doctors and nurses and healthcare assistants and everyone who works in a hospital are being told to self-isolate. As we've already suggested, there is a big backlog when it comes to elective surgeries. So this is not a good time for that to be going on in the NHS. Now, what can be done about this? Because it doesn't seem particularly sustainable. The government, as we've discussed, don't want to reduce the number of cases. So the proposed solutions appear to be allowing NHS staff to continue working even if they've been in contact with positive cases. That's been touted in the newspapers today. I suppose one argument for that is most of them will have been double vaxxed, so they are less likely to contract it. An argument against is they're in contact with lots of vulnerable people. Another response or potential solution is to allow double vaxxed people not to self-isolate. Um, now, that will obviously make a huge difference, considering most of the adult population is double vaccinated. That will only come into force from August the 16th. So we've got a month between now and then. Much talked about um, in the press was the idea that the sensitivity of the COVID app could be reduced to stop so many people getting pinged. Now, the argument against this is th this idea that that's like switching the fire alarm off because it keeps going off. It doesn't solve the underlying problem. The argument for changing the sensitivity is at the moment there are some big problems with the COVID app. Most importantly, that it can't tell if you're inside or outside. So obviously being next to or being close to someone for 15 minutes who's COVID positive inside means you've probably got COVID. If you do it outside a calf, if you do it you know, standing in a park, you're much less likely to get COVID. And this app isn't very good at distinguishing between those two situations. And finally, um, a solution that's already been, well, I say solution, a proposed um, uh, way out of this is to get rid of bubbles in schools. That will be the case from September. And the Guardian reported that according to the ONS, one third of people who self-isolated last week went on to develop COVID symptoms. I'm not sure if they included school children in that, but it's clear that weakening these measures will not um, have zero impact. Aaron, what do you make of the one, well, potentially 1.7 million people who were self-isolating last week? Probably more like 1.5 million, but whatever figure we use, that's a lot of people who aren't allowed to leave their houses. Yeah, and I, I think to be honest, Michael, from what I'm hearing, I think it's I think that's a significant understatement of people that should be isolating. You know, I've heard I've heard stories of people who are self-isolating and 
they're in large areas and then, you know, other people haven't. I mean, honestly, personally, there are dozens of people who've relayed to me the fact that they got COVID watching the football. One game. Dozens of people have told me that from different settings. Some at the stadium, some in pubs, et cetera, et cetera. I, God knows what we're looking at next. Next, we, we were talking earlier on, and you know, this works both ways, Michael, because we were somebody in the comments said, Oh, they don't know what exponential growth is. I talk about exponential growth in my book, fully automated electric communism. So I, I do know what it is. It's very different to linear growth. My point is, given that 50% of the population has had two doses of the vaccine, given people are producing antibodies from previously having it because the government's mismanaged this for so long, there's, there's clearly going to be a, a much lower ceiling than there was a year ago. But it also works the other way that if you just, uh, we, you know, we opened up. So quickly, it could be that actually the, the sort of the, the exponential growth kind of accelerates. And I, th I think it might do that after Euro 2020 or Euro 2021, as we should call it. Um, all those Scots coming down to London, I mean, they were great fun. Good luck to them. But I think that's clearly going to have some epidemiological sort of hangover. I think the same with the final. I think the same with people watching the final in pubs and so on. So, you know, let's see. I think this could actually accelerate, if anything, Michael. I don't know what your thoughts are. You know, it might not be like, oh, we'll double in three weeks. That 1.5 million could rise much quicker than that, or at least it should do. Uh, but from what we're hearing about people deleting the app, maybe maybe we won't get the clearest numbers. Well, Nick Gossett with £2 says, everyone I know who went to the Euro final has COVID. So <laughs> people who went to the Euro final probably should be testing positive already. That The incubation period is about five, five days. So one would imagine that a lot of those people are already included in the figures, though. Yeah, it, it will still be going up for whether well, the euro effect might still last a little bit longer from now. Anyway, we'll be back on Monday. So we'll be talking more about the, the impact of this unlocking. I'm hoping next week as well, we'll get some more um, scientists on, on both sides of this debate to come on and discuss what is a very complicated issue and a big risk. What, what everyone seems to agree is that the government is taking quite a big risk here. We're going to move to a non-COVID story now. Since becoming leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer has struggled with commitment. When it comes to the big questions of the day, the Labour leader has sat on the fence instead of taking a side. And it means most people, very reasonably, think he stands for nothing. However, this week, speaking to the BBC's Laura Koonsberg, he has come up with a pledge he hopes will grab the country's attention. It's to sweat blood to win back the nation's trust. Now, he made the comments after taking part in a focus group with ex-Labour voters in Blackpool. And um, the BBC put out a clip with some of the exchanges which took place in that focus group. First thing is, your party is divided within itself. Get rid of all these sort of uh, bickering people who are losers. You know, they want to lose further by doing what they're doing. If, if someone's in my shadow cabinet hmm. or on my front bench, I can do something about it because I can fire them. Um, if they're on the backbench, then they've got a bit more freedom to, to, to say what they want. But I get the, I mean, the point you're making is it doesn't really matter to anybody else. Um, you want to hear one voice. I honestly believe for Labour Party, it's a stigma of Jeremy Corbyn. You're still on, 18 months on, and it's still there. People think he's, just, he's, he's toxic. Trust is invaluable. You, if you lose trust in something or somebody or a, a, an organisation, to get that trust back is so difficult. You're on kind of a death spiral. I mean, we lost really badly in 2019. We lost 60 seats in a row and we've got a lot of work to do to rebuild. Um, and we've got to change. 
You can't lose that badly and say, well, we could, we'll keep things pretty well as they were, which is what we're doing. Keir Starmie did an interview afterwards with Laura Koonsberg. Um, this is what he said was the most important thing he heard from that focus group. Trust, and that trust has to be earned. And what I heard tonight was people, they weren't saying, I'll never trust you. What I heard them saying is, um, I have lost trust in Labour, but I might, I might have trust in the future, but it's down to you to earn it. Um, and that I will do, um, you know, sweating blood over the next days, weeks, months and years into the next general election. No pressure. It's exactly what I expected. Uh, this was always going to be a tough gig. Um, but actually, I'd much rather have the sort of robust discussion I had tonight uh, than the warm bath of simply talking to people who already agree with me. This is all part of Keir Starmer's self-flagellation tour. Will it work? Michael, that, that was the most infuriating thing I've seen in, in days. So first of all, that gentleman, the first gentleman that spoke said, get rid of all these losers. The, the BBC was presenting this as this is the core lost Labour vote. You know the last time he voted Labour? He was quite honest about it, fair enough. 1997. 1997. He hasn't voted Labour for 24 years. What are they going to do next? Are they going to start going to the cemeteries and exhuming people that voted for Harry, Harry, Harold Wilson in 1964, right? Or, 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 or 1974? Is that what they're going to do? Is that, well, let's find out. Well, let's, let's find out what this person can say. This is the quintessence of what Labour should be adhering to. The guy didn't vote for Labour after 1997. They went on to win two general elections without him voting for them. I, I, I think they'll be okay. They don't, they don't need this guy. Another person saying Jeremy Corbyn's toxic. He last voted for Labour in 2010. So clearly Jeremy Corbyn didn't lose Labour's vote. Jeremy Corbyn was not the leader of the Labour Party for nine years. There was a predecessor. It was Ed Miliband. He says 2010. I mean, maybe he doesn't remember correctly. Uh, and then, you know, the other chap saying, we, we have to, you know, get trust back. And someone's going, I know, I know, I know. Starmer, by the way, was the, the architect of Labour's Remain position. Blackpool South voted 67.5% to leave the European Union. And he slapped those people in the face saying, nope, we're going to have another, another referendum. But the lost, the lost trust, nothing to do with me, Gov. And this to me says a few things, Michael. Firstly, he has a pathological, and this is, really, this is so dislikable. He has a pathological aversion to taking responsibility. But he does this corporate thing where he says, I'm going to take responsibility. And then he takes zero responsibility. Zero. He's never taken any responsibility for the Brexit petition. Never. Not one iota of responsibility for it. And the fact this is being broadcast on the BBC, what is this? Is this a proper exercise to collect data? focus groups do that? Or is this a media stunt? Because in all honesty, you can't do the same two things. And anybody who's familiar with methodology and in, 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 in qualitative research methods will tell you that people, if they're being recorded on a camera for national television, are going to change their answers, right? The, you, you change the conditions under which you ask the questions and you get different answers. So methodologically, it makes this focus group quite weak. It's just another stunt, Michael. It's just another fucking stunt. It's from a, you know, it's a stunt from a man who hasn't got a clue what he's doing. It's terrifying. You know, Labour at this rate are going to struggle to get their 2019 vote, let alone their 2017 vote, let alone forming a majority. But we know what the excuse is going to be because he only makes excuses. It's going to be, well, it's Jeremy Corbyn's fault. And when he says we have to change, by the way, that's code for saying I'm going to ditch the 10 pledges. He became the leader by saying I'm going to have these 10 pledges. There's a bit of continuity on policy. And now he's saying we've got to change. So every single person that voted for Keir Starmer, well done, because all the things he promised, they're going down the toilet. And the worst thing of all is, I think, they'll get fewer votes in the process. The worst guy at the worst time to be leader of the Labour Party right now.
when the political dial could have moved so far, so quickly during the course of this pandemic, and actually it's gone the other way. Congratulations, Keir Starmer. Mm, I mean, I, I think the points you raise are quite important because there is also a political purpose to this kind of self-flagellation tour, which is he is very specifically talking to people who are ex-Labour voters, as you say, some of them not since 1997. And this is all part of justifying his project to take the party to the right. What it completely ignores is that just because people who voted for you in, in 2019, it, you might not see them as a priority, but they can go elsewhere. And if it seems as if you only care about the people who didn't vote Labour last time around, they're not going to take particularly kindly to that. And that does seem to be the way that Keir Starmer behaves. He essentially says, if you voted Labour in 2019, you're a bit of an idiot. What kind of idiot would have trusted us in 2019? We have to build back that trust because only idiots voted for us then. People don't like that. One group of people um, who there are suggestions will not like this is the young. Um, the young obviously overwhelmingly voted for Labour when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. They came up in these focus groups. And this particular um, part of a longer BBC clip annoyed lots of people. Under 25, don't waste your money. Don't waste your money. <laughs> Don't waste your money. <laughs> if they want to work, they are already working. But they're just sitting on the backsides. They don't want to. Because the government are still paying them to sit on their bums, they will not get up. In this country, there's a lot of people under the age of 25 who just don't want to work. Trying to get everybody into a job, I just don't think that will, <laughs> will happen. You're always going to get um, some people who maybe don't want to work, but there are lots of young people who've, been, who've lost their job in this pandemic. Lots of people got very, very annoyed by that clip because of, I suppose, what the woman said to Keir Starmer. She said there are lots of people who are under 25 who just don't want to go to work um, because of, well, essentially because the scheme to, to pay people money over the pandemic has been too generous. Um, and it was seen that Keir Starmer didn't push back strongly enough against that. I thought potentially that was blaming him for what was said in his presence. and It was a highly edited video. What did you make of that particular controversy? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair that's a fair judgment. I don't agree with it, but I think that's a fair judgment. Um, clearly, it would be highly edited, and he he does clarify that he thinks you know that's a very minority of people. I don't agree with him, by the way. Uh, the worst thing than having a job under capitalism is not having a job under capitalism. I've never met a person in my life who had no money, who was broke, and who didn't want a job. I've never met a person because it's the worst thing in the world. It's the worst thing in the world, and the only people who say that are people who uh, who say otherwise who have never experienced it. And for me, this is a, a guy who's a barrister, a sir, a QC. What the woman was saying was crap, and he's clearly not on a level with her. But I, I think, look, if you want to be a leader of the Labour Party, and one of your, your most essential core bases of support is amongst young people, you need to go and back for them, Michael. And people say, oh, is he patriotic? Does he love his country? You can't be patriotic and love your country if you think everybody under a certain age is a, is a twat, is a lazy good for nothing. You can't. It, mean, it, mean, it means you're a misanthrope. It means you hate... What is the what is your country if it's not the people inside it? And so if you detest all these people, you don't love the country. You're just a you're an ignorant misanthrope, which is what that lady is. And sadly, we saw this with the was it the Gillian Duffy quote in 2010? Gordon Brown apologized for calling her a racist bigot. She was a racist bigot. And Labour needs to have the front like Biden with the Democrats. Sorry, madam, I disagree. That's what he said. And, and you know what? People go, well, I really like this guy. That's really impressive. He, he has the front to say I disagree. Yeah, I disagree. I've never met a young person who needs work, who refuses a job because they need the money. Sorry, maybe we've had different experiences in life.
Oliver Kant with a fiver. The Labour right exist purely to punch left and do nothing else. To be a roadblock, there is no strategy to win. Uh, fair enough. Agree with that. Kieran Buckley with a fiver says, the way Labour is going, it looks like we will be stuck under Tories for decades, if not the rest of our lives, which is a nightmare to think about. That is a nightmare to think about. Matt Bond with a fiver. What does Keir Starmer's Labour offer the young, genuine question? Not very much. I, I assume... Um, they are potentially hoping that in the general election, when they say free tuition, um, everyone's going to suddenly be like, oh, fine, we will vote for them. He might have burnt too many bridges by then. Loz Hennessy with 1244. I've just started my third self-isolation on the trot. Situation in Bristol is dire. Thanks for keeping me sane, Michael Walker. Um, you're very welcome, Loz. I'm very sad to hear you've started your third self-isolation on the trot. There is definitely something very unsustainable about the government saying on the one hand we don't really mind loads and loads of covid cases and then on the other if you potentially come into contact with someone with a covid case you have to isolate for 10 days potentially over and over again either it's a big deal or it's not and i think they probably um, need to make their minds up to some degree the idea that you don't have mandatory masks but you do have mandatory self-isolation doesn't make any sense to me but in in any case solidarity i hope you found some good things to watch, as well as Navarro Media, of course. Now, before our next story, we do have some news about the show. Very exciting. We're currently hiring another member of our production team so that we can expand, improve this show. We are really, really excited about getting someone else on board. So if you are interested in the role, you can check out the details on our website. And the link is in the description of the video. The deadline is this Sunday, so I cannot emphasize enough if you are interested in this role. And I've got to say, working on Tisky Sour is is good. It's good fun. Um, you will enjoy it. Make sure you apply by this Sunday. Next story. GB News, the channel set up to promote free speech, has already suspended one of its presenters. That was for taking the knee. This was the incident which started the row. The benefit of hindsight, I may have underestimated how close to the surface the racism still was. I actually now get it. And so much so that I think, you know, we should all take the knee. In fact, why not take the knee now and just say it's a gesture, but it's an important gesture. And, you know, it's not about me in the studio, but for them to do that as footballers on the field makes sense because they're saying it's just not Right. And racism has no place in football and no place in modern Britain. And those people who think that being English is is, is OK with being anti-black people are completely misguided. And they need to know that there is no space for them in normal, acceptable society. Now, that was Guto Hari. He's a former BBC journalist and a former advisor to Boris Johnson. He's recently started hosting that show on GB News, which you just saw. Now, you might be surprised to watch that. It was a kind of uncharacteristically thoughtful intervention from a GB News presenter, but it caused a huge backlash from the channel's snowflake audience. They proceeded to boycott the channel. Now, I'm going to show you a characteristic tweet from one of the very upset GB News viewers. This is the Brexit Defence League. They have 27,000 followers and they tweeted, thousands turn off GB News as they begin virtue signalling to viewers and take the knee. What happened to Andrew Neil's promise of anti-woke journalism? GB News is no better than the BBC. They deserve to lose what's left of their diminishing viewers. 
Of course, it is difficult to know quite how many people actively boycotted the channel. But one thing we do know is that whatever the reason, not many people are watching it. Indeed, The Guardian have reported that at certain times this week, GB News attracted zero viewers. Yes, zero viewers. Now, this wasn't at 2 a.m. either. It wasn't the, the graveyard shift. Let's go to a section of that report. Um, they write, business editor Liam Halligan and former Labour MP Gloria De Piero attracted no measurable audience to their show between 1 p.m. and 1.30 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon. During the same time slot, the BBC News Channel attracted 62,000 viewers, while Sky News had 50,000 people watching. GB News's audience again briefly dipped to zero at 5 p.m. during a late afternoon programme co-hosted by ex-BBC presenter Simon McCoy and former UKIP spokesperson. Alex Phillips. Now, you might ask, what does it mean to say no measurable effect? Presumably, there was at least one person um, in Britain watching GB News at that time. Now, it is quite possible there was um, one person watching GB News at that time. Ratings are worked out via monitoring the devices of 5,100 households who are representative of the overall UK viewing public. And then they, using that representative sample, estimate how many people would have watched each show. So, here we can assume that no one in any of those 5,100 households was watching GB News. Now, whether or not that was because the show is boring or because people were actively boycotting it, it has clearly shaken GB News. On Thursday, they tweeted an apology for Hari taking the knee. They wrote, on Tuesday, a contributing presenter took the knee live on air, and this was an unacceptable breach of our standards. Their standards are to be a little bit racist or, or not be anti-racist, I suppose. Now, they've since gone further and suspended Hari. Um, sources at the station told the, the Guardians Hari had been taken off air indefinitely. And all of this shows that apparently the station, which rails against woke mobs, gave in to the demands of its own right-wing mob who were upset that the channel was not 100% reactionary 100% of the time, only 90% reactionary 90% of the time. A friend of Guto Hari told The Guardian, GB News is becoming an absurd parody of what it proclaimed to be, not defending free speech and combating cancel culture, but replicating it on the far right. Nasty. It's ridiculous to say he's breached editorial standards and almost certainly defamatory. In reality, it wasn't a breach of editorial code, but sacked for offending the lynch mob. GB News is clearly a parody of itself, isn't it? It launched saying we are a channel for free speech. We don't give it to woke mobs. We're here to challenge them. Then the moment some of their audience don't like what they've seen, they cave in, sack or suspend or take off air one of their main presenters. It is, it is, it is unique. I don't think there's another instance of a presenter on the BBC or Channel 4 ITV doing what he did. And there is an argument to be made that, you know, presenter contractually you know, it's not a guest. It's not somebody who's just a guest presenter. He is a guest presenter, but he has some sort of long-term relationships to a news organization. GB News is obviously not a news organization, but it claims to be. I can see the argument and say, well, you shouldn't do that again. That's not what's happened. What's happened is he's basically been put on permanent gardening leave because there was an effective de facto boycott because there are so many racists that watch their channel. And, and actually the last thing they care about is freedom of speech. They want to defend your freedom of speech, Michael, just as long as they agree with you. And if they don't, then you need to shut the hell up, which is what happened with Gita Hari. So, yes, it reveals a, a genuine weak, weak point in, in right-wing politics, which I think the left is getting better at. We gave them far too much space and room on this for years, particularly because of Brexit. 
But these people actually care about freedom of expression less than anyone else, not more, less than anyone else. Uh, and, you know, Rosa Luxemburg was that great left-wing defender of freedom of expression. I think as a socialist, you have to believe in freedom of speech. Uh, and the right, you know, it's just, it's just been, a, it's been a means by which they've been able to insert themselves into popular political conversations and give themselves a certain credit when they never deserved it because they really don't but they really don't believe in this stuff they really don't believe in this stuff the amount of times michael i've tried to invite on for interview a, a right-wing thinker who's written a book or whatever they're an influential person and to talk about what they do they don't even they don't even respond that's their right by the way they can do that but we we make an effort at navarra media to talk to people that we don't agree with you yourself when you're hosting this you try and see an argument from both points of view etc they don't do that they don't do that because what GB News is, Michael, is it's not a media organization, it's political communications, which is to say what it does, just like Fox News, it finds a political argument which it disagrees with, it finds the weakest possible part of that argument or the weakest advocate of that argument, and it then relentlessly attacks it. That's not news, that's not investigating, that's not informing your audience, it's propaganda. Uh, and so, of course, it shouldn't be surprised that propagandists aren't that interested in freedom of expression? Two different things. I want to push back against the first thing you said there, Aaron, because you suggested that whilst it is disproportionate to put Guto Hari on gardening leave, it might have been reasonable to admonish him because he is a host, he's not a guest, and he was taking a, a overtly political stance. Now, that, of course, would be fair enough if this was the BBC or the IT or ITV. Obviously, Robert Peston can't take the knee on ITV because they're not allowed to take any political stances on those channels. But GB News set itself up precisely to be an opinionated station. In all of their opening statements, in all of their founding documents, they suggest we are going to have opinionated hosts. He was, an express, he was expressing an opinion. That's completely allowed at GB News. And in fact, this was tweeted by Andrew Neil after the launch night when Dan Wooten sort of railed um, against government scientists saying they were, you know, obsessed and, and addicted to power, um, completely spreading lots of misinformation about lockdowns. And in response to that controversy, Andrew Neil tweeted, I'm the flagship presenter. I did not say this. If another presenter said this, that's for them to defend. I don't agree with it. But GB News believes in free speech, even for presenters, right? He then goes on, it has nothing to do with hate, it's just wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But the key part there, GB News believes in free speech, even for presenters. So GB News explicitly, if you're a presenter, you're allowed to have a political opinion. All of their presenters express um, lots of often quite extreme political opinions. It's only if the opinion you express um, is anti-racist that you get into trouble. Um, I want to go to a few more nuggets of information we've got from, from insiders when it comes to GB News, because it does seem like this has caused a bit of a crisis within the organisation. So since um, putting Guto Hari on gardening leave, the channel's director of programming, John McAndrew, has resigned. I'm sure you haven't heard of John McAndrew, so we're going to go to the Guardian report, which gives us some context here. They write, McAndrew, a well-known figure in the television news industry who has a long track record at mainstream outlets, including Sky News and Euronews, was considered to be the channel's second in command and played a key role in convincing many of the more established mainstream presenters to join. Sources suggest he had come under pressure to dial down the focus on local reporting and free debate in favour of full-blooded culture war topics, so chose to 
resign. Um, also leaving is Jill Penlington. Um, the Guardian say um, she is, again, she's a senior producer. She'd worked at CNN and, and, and Sky News. So you've got lots of senior figures now leaving, especially the ones who come from mainstream journalistic establishments, people who wanted it to focus on local news. And and you'll remember that opening advert where they say, we, we speak for all of England. Now, clearly, the bosses have said, no, we want to go heavy on culture wars because that's the kind of thing we pe people tune into. And now there's, there's a big split within the organization. Of course, we showed you an Andrew Neil tweet. He's obviously been topic of much speculation because after two weeks of hosting the flagship show and after being the chair of the organization for its launch he's already gone on an unplanned extended holiday um people were also speculating because he hadn't tweeted about the organization for a couple of weeks but i think in response to that speculation today he tweeted startups are fraught and fractious gb news is no exception but the news channel is finding its feet and has a great future what watch this space um, Aaron, do you think that uh, that Andrew Neil is going to follow these other senior executives and and leave GB News, or do you think he's going to be in it for the long haul? No, I think he'll I think he'll bail. There are a few things uh, that he's been involved in, in the past. There, there was a newspaper, for instance, called Today. There was the European newspaper, not the New European. Um, these these were both from the early 1990s, which he was involved in, and they both they both folded. Um, so he's been involved in failed media projects before big money media projects. So that, that wouldn't be new. Uh, equally, you know, he was involved in the creation of Sky News. Murdoch sent him over there from the Sunday Times. He walked away. Not, that wasn't a failure, but he walked away from it. He was sent to work uh, start up Fox News. My God, this guy was working for the BBC for 20 years. He didn't really make much impact there. So uh, Andrew Neal is a strange creature because he's a confection of effectively the Rupert Murdoch complex in print media, particularly the Sunday Times, and the BBC. But other than that, he hasn't really been particularly successful. You know, he loves the free market, but his broadcast career has rested on effectively a, a massively well-funded public service broadcaster. Quite ironic. So I, I don't think there's any real evidence in his in his resume that he'll turn this around. I think he's he's, he's going to walk away because he's, he's quit similar projects in the past. So I don't see why this would be any different. The most pathetic thing of all, Michael, is that he'll probably go back to the BBC. The BBC will probably take him back. I just find the whole thing fatuous, ridiculous, bizarre. Um, I do think also that GB News, I mean, it has two options at this point, doesn't it? It has, you know, a sort of, either it just collapses, which may happen. Um, like I said, there's been similar media projects in the past. It's generally been newspapers. There was a paper that was launched by the left in the 80s called, I believe it was called The News on Sunday. People can correct me in the comments. A couple of million went into that. I think it only ended up producing maybe a dozen editions. It went out of business. So this isn't new. Uh, and of course, because of the falling costs of entry into things like broadcast media, particularly radio, particularly TV, maybe we should be expecting almost these kinds of ventures to be increasingly common, but also increasingly likely to fail. Uh, I always thought the approach was a very strange one. They should have started minimal built up, learn from the mistakes, recruit as you go, rather than week one, day one, anno zero, that's it. Singing, dancing, you know, BBC News, zero calorie version, right, but very right wing. I didn't I didn't think that was a wise way to proceed. They should have started like on a YouTube channel, maybe got a DAB license, maybe did an LBC style thing. That would have made more sense to me, which does suggest they don't know what they're doing. All right, we're going to go to our final story now.
We at Navara Media are all incredibly sad to pass on the news that Dawn Foster, a brilliant journalist, committed socialist and longtime friend of this organisation, has tragically passed away. Dawn was only 34 and she died suddenly at her home after suffering from a long-term illness. Dawn, I'm sure most of our, our, our audience will be very, very familiar with her. She was a staff writer at Jacobin and before that a columnist at The Guardian. Um, she was well known in particular for her uncompromising reporting on injustice across the UK. That was particularly related to housing, social welfare and disability. Lots of topics that so many people in mainstream journalism just don't care about. That was her passion. She reported on people who were ignored by mainstream journalism. And I, I think that's you know why people valued her so highly and why it's been so devastating to hear the news this week. Dawn, for anyone who didn't know her background, I mean, she she was a rarity in being a working class woman who rose up to become a prominent national opinion writer, a regular on the BBC, a regular on Sky, lots of other mainstream platforms, always arguing passionately for for the left, defending the principles of, of socialism, often in, in very difficult circumstances. And she did it, you know, remarkably well, she will. She she also has um, appeared on Navarra Media regularly since 2015, um, on FMs, on Tisky Sour, on the Fix. When we had that show, has always been a really, really good friend of the show. Really generous with her time. You know, a real privilege um, to to have her on board with with our, our project in over over various times. I also have to say, from my own experience, as well as a, an incredibly sharp intellect, um, she was you know, a brilliant individual, always the life of a party, incredibly generous with her time, with her thoughts, very funny. We're going to talk about what Dawn meant to Navarra and the left in in a moment. First of all, for anyone who is unfamiliar with Dawn's work, and as I say, I, I imagine most people watching this, this will be, I want to read a couple of extracts from her writing, which I think um, really summarise what was so exceptional about her as a journalist. Now, this first extract is from a Guardian piece from 2015, and this was on living life with a chronic illness. Dawn wrote, usually visits to doctors are rare, trips to hospital rarer still. Your body is temporarily malfunctioning. It is medicine's job to, job to fix you. But when you're chronically ill, the equilibrium shifts and your attitude to your body does too. If sickness is a sign of being broken, coming to terms with the fact that you are going to be broken forever is a tremendous blow. Nothing brings this home more than the never-ending NHS-headed appointment letters, blood tests, scans and consultations. You know more about your body than you ever imagined. I've told no end of nurses that they'll find it impossible to get blood out of my bloody terrible veins, consultants' medical terminology, without a butterfly needle. I'm lucky. I'm as functional as most healthy people despite multiple chronic health conditions, but at the same time, I'm reminded that I could die at any point from an epileptic seizure or that the genetic condition that causes constant pain could, with little warning, advance to make me lose the ability to walk. Now, obviously, um, the circumstances in which we're having this discussion make that all the more heartbreaking to read. The topic which has come up most most often on social media, and I do really recommend um, if you haven't been on Twitter over the past 24 hours, just search Dawn Foster, see all of the wonderful things people are writing about her, all the wonderful memories people are, are sharing, because it is a real, real credit to her. Um, but as I say, the, the thing that which, which comes up a lot in terms of her writing is housing and also Grenfell, a section from a 2017 piece um, from Jacobin. This was written on the day of the fire. Then Dawn wrote, Margaret Thatcher famously argued that there was no such thing as society. 
It was an idea that did immense damage, particularly to those who need social housing. But in places like West London on days like today, it is proven wrong in a fundamental way. The local community pulled together, offering places to stay, taking donations, donations, coordinating resources. The volume of rage at the tragedy and the fact that it seems so preventable has forced politicians to promise investigations. The battle now is to ensure that this anger is turned into change. Survivors must be properly housed. Those who could have prevented the fire must be held accountable. People living in similarly dangerous conditions across the country must be given urgent assistance. The housing crisis must be tackled. As one resident told me, many people will have died locked in their homes, aware that nobody had cared for their safety while they lived. The only way to change a world where that can happen is through political action. I think that sentence is, is a very important one to end on. The only way to change a world where that can happen is through political action. Goes without saying someone at such a young age dying is so tragic, whoever they are, you know, we share lots of friends who will be, you know, in, in, in deep mourning now. I wanted you to talk, I suppose, on, on a broad term of, of what, what Dawn Foster and her work meant for, for Navarra and the broader UK left. Yeah, she was um, a fearless journalist, woman, socialist. Uh, she was formidable. And I saw somebody uh, post this on Instagram and I thought it was, it summed her right up. She was the opposite of a sycophant. Dawn was pathologically, constitutionally incapable of being obsequious, of being servile. She could only tell the truth. And it didn't always advance her career. It wasn't always necessarily in her best interest, but th that's who she was. It curtailed her, her, her pro progression in the industry massively. In terms of her relationship to Navarra, and she still did so extraordinarily well, and like I say, from her background, she was always defying the odds. To do that while retaining that honesty, I think is remarkable. It's singular, I think, in Britain. In terms of her relationship to Navarra media, she was always incredibly generous. Very close friends with James Butler, of course, my, my co-founder. Uh, she would always make time to, to come on the show in the early days and and to offer advice or tips. Um, uh, and she was just always there. And she was very, very aware of the fact that we, we needed to change politics in this country. And that it wasn't just going to come from some particular person, even if it was Jeremy Corbyn, leading the Labour Party. Dawn knew that we had to create a movement in this country, um, in the media, in organized labor, um, and yeah, of course, in party politics and social movements. She was somebody who was ready to be a part of that and to make serious sacrifices for that, to build a better country, a better, a better planet. Um, and so somebody like that, with that energy, that passion, that, that uh, constant determination to always just be brutally honest, she never punched down, it's important to say. I, I can't recall her ever punching down. It was remarkable. And so for her to pass at, I think, 34, deeply, deeply, deeply sad, deeply sad. I say that as somebody who, who who knew her, but I think she had so she had so much to say. She had I know that she was working on a on a, on a on a larger project around housing, around Grenfell. I don't know how that progressed. I think the last time I spoke to her was maybe about 18 months ago, you know, face to face, unsurprisingly, maybe two years ago at a, a Grenfell solidarity demo. She was working on something then. This was probably two years ago. She wants to give a voice to people that didn't have a voice in this country. And so uh, obviously it's just terrible that somebody so spectacularly unique has, has gone. But I think that's, that, that's the important thing to say is that she was, she was the opposite of so much that we criticize the media for in this country, Michael. You know, we talk about sycophancy and, 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 and civility and, and, and doing whatever you have to do to, to progress in the industry. She never did any of that. 
and she still scaled the heights. So rest in peace. She was also quite rare as a, a commentator on the left because I think we often, I do this myself, you, you, you fall into this situation of thinking about short-term tactics. You're, I think about this especially in terms of the second referendum. I mean, I always thought the second referendum was a bad idea. Then by 2019, I was like, oh, let's go for it, trying to win over this section of the electorate, this section of the commentariat, et cetera, et cetera. Dawn never did any of that. She didn't give a fuck when it came to, to issues like that. Her purpose was clear, which was to represent voiceless people to talk about the issues she cared about, housing, poverty, austerity. She didn't flap about with sort of the moralism that I try not to fall into, but I, you know, looking back at sort of how I've engaged in politics over the past five years, I can't help it. I do it all the time and I can't think of a single instance where Dawn got distracted or caught up in that debate where there's all these people saying, oh, the left there, you know, they're this, that, this, that, and we have to defend ourselves. No, we're not this, that, this, that. She's just like, who gives a fuck about this? And I, I really, really respect that. Aaron, I, I know you want to come come back in on this. Yeah, I think it's also important to say that, you know, there were often times, because I've known Dawn, I knew Dawn for maybe 10 years. She was there covering the UCAN Cup process in 2010, you know. I, I, we would clash different personalities um, and that would happen with other people. It's important to say this, but I can honestly say whenever I had a disagreement with her and then somebody would sort of, you know, you, people have conversations or I would try and I, there was some, once I tried to uh, sort of mend a rift between her and somebody else, never once politically did I think she was wrong. Never once, never. I might have disagreed with the tone of what she said or whatever, but she was a comrade. And that's a really, really important thing to say, Michael, really important thing to say because you know, like I say, when you when you had a, a disagreement, generally over how the, the the point was made rather than the actual substance of the point itself, you put it to one side and you say, no, no, politically she is sound. She is really up there with 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 almost always getting things right. And like you say, there wasn't this flapping around trying to be you know morally right. Uh, she had a real a hard heart, not in a bad way, in a very, very good way. She was an incredibly resolute, formidable woman. There's not many people you can say that for, Michael. I really, honestly, there's very few people I can say politically. I don't I don't recall ever actually disagreeing with something they said, the political mm. substance of it. I mean, we should clarify, obviously, she, she cared about being morally right, but it was not caring about being seen to be morally right. That That's what makes people on, or people across the political spectrum, but especially, you know, I fall into it being seen to be morally right, you know, matters as much as, you know, actually holding the position you you believe in. I want to go to a couple of, of comments. Juliet Jakes says, rest in power, Dawn, one of the smartest, most uncompromising and hilarious people I met, utterly dedicated to her class over her career. Thanks for covering this terrible mm. loss. And Sal says, Dawn was a journalist who put principles before career. The country would be a much better place if more in her industry did the same. Um, really lovely comments. As I say, I really do you know, recommend go on Twitter, search Dawn Foster, see all the wonderful things um, people are saying about her at the moment, because you, you will see how much she meant to so many people. Um, Aaron, I want to go to, I suppose, your, your, your final comments before we close the show. Yeah, there was, um, we, we, we posted an Instagram um, uh, sort of um, a carousel of images um, commemorating Dawn's passing. And I think the final one talked about how she should really be an inspiration to people that want to join the media to be journalists. And I thought what, what Juliet Jake said there was on the money. She put her class over her career. Um, uh, and that is, again, incredibly rare, Michael. You know, we, we do at Navarra Media, 
what we do because we believe in, in, a, in a set of political values and we want to advance them. That's why we started the organization. But Dawn, I mean, somehow, somehow did that in the confines of the mainstream media, which is incredibly difficult, but she, she managed to do it. And she made some, some hugely important interventions. If I recommend you to do one thing this weekend, it's, it's go and look up um, what Dawn Foster has, has written over the past 10 years. Um, explore her work. Um, watch the intervention she's made on on, on YouTube. And um, yeah, my, my thoughts go out to, to everyone who was really close to her. I know there are a lot of people hurting this weekend. We are going to wrap up the show at this point. Thank you so much for watching as always. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.